Welcome to the Open Pew Podcast, your home for public theology made practical. We're interviewing faith leaders, public theologians, and so much more. And so if you want a theology show that talks about ministry as it relates to the real world, this might be the one for you. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode. I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Norris, the visiting professor at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and as usual, I'm just going to let him give him the time to say whatever he wants to say about himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I've been uh, full-time at Wesley uh, for the last two years. I'm a visiting professor of public theology. I help teach uh, Christian ethics and public theology courses at Wesley and work with our uh, new Center for Public Theology, uh, where we do some uh, public programming, uh, direct a, a specialization and certificate program, um, and, and help uh, kind of navigate students through uh, the intersections of, of faith and politics with uh, different uh, course options and uh, internships and opportunities uh, while they're at Wesley. Uh, it kind of fits directly in with my uh, areas of, of interest and, and research, which uh, are in uh, kind of church practices and political uh, engagement. And as I was working on several projects related to that in grad school and, and afterwards, uh, one of the projects turned into this uh, uh, current book project on uh, on race uh, called Witnessing Whiteness and the ways that uh, we can't really talk about faith and politics or church and politics without also talking about uh, the story of race, both in the American political scene uh, and in uh, kind of the uh, church history and the ways that that uh, certainly factors into current conversations. So so your book is, remind me the name of it again, Witnessing? Witnessing Whiteness, uh, confronting, yeah, confronting White Supremacy in the American Church. Okay. And you were, you were kind enough to send the introduction and the first chapter over. Uh, and I was able to, I was able to more or less read all of it. I think the premise, uh, the premise is very interesting in the, uh, the, the reading, the reading and the examination of what it means to, to tackle theology from this perspective. You, you kind of talk about, you talk about like the blind spots that a lot of theologians are working with. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I recall, you uh, in, right there in the introduction, you you made you talked about the the color the the color blindness of Stanley Hauerwas's theology, for instance. <laughs> yes. Um, and I I I thought that was uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and a few and a few mm-hmm. other I know a few friends of mine who uh, who would be more than delighted to hear that <laughs> um, <laughs> hear your critique. Um, and and so I just kind of wanted to to get an idea of, of uh, overall what is the what is the focus of the book if you could break it down into uh, into a brief blurb and then uh, who is it who is it maybe that you hope to read it yeah yeah I'll, I'll give a uh, kind of basic thesis to the book and we can talk about Harawas as much as you want to after that <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, so the basic argument of the book is that uh, due to the uh, role of Christianity and the origins and proliferation of, of white supremacy. The white church and its theology and theologians have a special responsibility to confront, to uh, contest and dismantle white supremacy. Uh, and that this begins, this work necessarily begins by first witnessing our own whiteness, that is uh, kind of uncovering the ways that 
white supremacy has infiltrated and influences both the, the work that we do, the theology that we do, our worldviews, our church practices. Um, and I, and I argue that, that, that in this contemporary moment that manifests itself most profoundly in colorblindness. I mean, we all see, uh, kind of, we at least weekly stories of, of explicit racism, white, white nationalists marching or, uh, kind of white nationalist terrorism or that kind of thing. There's certainly a lot there to critique, but I'm more interested in looking at some of the more subtle ways that white supremacies manifest in, and even well-meaning and, and progressive Christianity in ways that I think help support and bolster some of the more explicit forms of racism. Things that I imagine some of my uh, my African American um, and and other uh, ethnic friends might might refer to as the microaggressions. Yeah, uh, I mean certainly the microaggression, but kind of even even more uh, sort of subtle and invisible ways. So even microaggressions are, are are kind of acts, even though some of them may be sort of unconscious acts. But I'm even looking at so Tekarawas as the example, just in terms <laughs> of of like silence when it comes to talking about racism and and a, a focus on Stanley. I'm, you know, did my MDiv at, at, at Duke and, you know, still have very profound kind of Harawasian tendencies and, you know, my own work at, uh, and, and kind of post-liberal tendencies that have been greatly influenced uh, by Harawas uh, and, and Cohn, the other major interlocutor in the, in, in the book, uh, and kind of find myself in, in some ways as a kind of uh, liberationist, <laughs> post-liberal in a way is kind of trying to navigate uh, both of those areas of formation. Um and, and uh, I've chose Stanley for this project just because he, he actually gives reasons for some of his for his silence when it comes to to race and for some of the uh, kind of maneuvers that he makes. Uh, and I just think that those are very interesting. And in a lot of ways, I think, uh, provide an example of the ways that a lot of white theologians and white pastors and ministers uh, kind of navigate or avoid issues of racial justice currently. Interesting. I yeah, I can I can see that I can I, I I can see that, and as you as you're like saying it, I can like imagine a few a, a, a multitude of of theologians that I know of that do exactly that. And so so kind of before we before we talk too much about before we fall into the temptation of talking too much about Hauerwas, I actually I it's was always actually, a temptation. It's always <laughs> a temptation. I was actually curious about your your interaction with James Cone, um, with the late late Dr. James Cone. Uh, because you mentioned that right there in the introduction, and at least in the introduction, you kind of give it as like just you mention it, but you don't go too far into depth beyond saying that Cohen was uh, pretty skeptical of you at mm, first, yeah, <laughs> um, as as I imagine him to be, <laughs> um, and and so I just kind of. Uh, t- Call it call it fanboying maybe, but I'm just actually mm-hmm. kind of curious what that interaction looked like. Yeah, uh, uh, for sure. I mean, uh, like I said, uh, kind of over the last few years, Cohen's become the other kind of major influence in the work and kind of theological perspective that I take. So when I first began this project and uh, kind of previous form of a uh, dissertation when I was at the University of Virginia, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say part of this project was motivated by my, my, my own experience of wanting to do uh, a kind of Hauerwasian project and looking at the ways that different theologians conceptualize the relationship between church and world and what the implications of that would be for concrete church practices. And I wanted to look at the ecclesiologies of at least two or more major figures, and, and two of those uh, were going to be Stanley Harawas and, and James Cohen, just because I thought that they had very interesting and interesting, interestingly different views and conceptions about models of the church. Uh, and I realized that as I was working in this project, a kind of project in political theology, uh, was completely 
respond to some of the ways that race factored into that. I was doing a project, uh, you know, involving the founder of Black Liberation Theology and wasn't really focusing uh, on race. Uh, and, and so that kind of signaled to me the ways that uh, I was colorblind and the ways that kind of my whiteness had uh, impacted the you know direction I would take in this particular project and probably a lot of the other ways that I uh, kind of do theology and engage in, 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 in church. And so uh, I uh, reached out to Colin and asked him if I could uh, interview him. Part of the uh, appeal for this project was to do a project in, involving two theologians who were still alive who I could interact with and interview and, and place in conversation with each other. Colin and Harawas have never, to my knowledge, been kind of uh, in, engaged in a comparative study and have really never engaged with one another in writing or anything like that. And so I wanted to kind of facilitate a discussion. So when I reached out to Harawas, uh, yeah, he was, uh, I mean, to, to Colin, he was uh, certainly skeptical uh, at the beginning, which I don't blame him, you know, a uh, kind of, you know, pesky white grad student from UVA, which uh, isn't known for being the most uh, kind of racially progressive uh, institution, uh, wants to talk to him about uh, blackness and uh, his conception of the church. And I can uh, <laughs> imagine that he thought that I was going to, uh, you know, have some serious uh, problems with that uh, over. So he agreed to an initial phone call. Uh, and over that phone call, I've at least uh, convinced him to allow me to come up to, to Union uh, and, and interview him. And that resulted in a couple uh, of, of, kind of face-to-face conversations and interviews, uh, in which at that point, I found Cohen to be one of the most uh, kind of hopeful and inspirational uh, scholars that I've ever encountered uh, in my life. I mean, obviously, uh, he takes his work very seriously and he takes... Kind of racial oppression very seriously, and that comes through in, in a lot of the kind of interview quotes that I uh, place in, in in the book about what's required of white Christians to repent of uh, the the uh, you know the, the racism we've inflicted on the world. But uh, to some degree, I found both he and Harawas just a vulnerability to uh, be willing to be uh, kind of interviewed, which I find uh, as I'm being interviewed on this podcast podcast right now is a much more vulnerable state than sitting and writing and revising <laughs> and editing your own work before anybody ever sees or hears it. Uh, and so I was very grateful for that. And then just their willingness to uh, kind of engage and be uh, reflective about some of their own uh, kind of mistakes and failings and, and, and uh, areas of, of, of growth. But after, uh, but uh, kind of for Cohen specifically, uh, sort of his embrace of, of the conversation uh, and, you know, me coming at a time where I was, you know, uh, seeing the world around us and, and being, you know, quite frankly, pretty pessimistic about the possibility for uh, white Christians to kind of get over uh, our racism and, and his uh, kind of insistence that the gospel not only calls us to this work, but also empowers us to do it mm-hmm. um, was a kind of side of calm that, that I don't think many at least white seminary students, when you, uh, you know, kind of read uh, Black Theology and Black Power, kind of get that sense of, of this kind of strong sense of gospel calling uh, that he feels uh, and that he wants you to experience also, that it's uh, um, an invitation uh, is, is the way that I put it in the book to white Christians rather than um, uh, putting up walls. Uh, <laughs> yes, having having spent time in classes where where, peop- where we ended up reading Cone or, or at least interacting with Cohen in some in some capacity um, it's always 
it's always interesting to see um, oftentimes as, as white people, we become so, so intimidated by Cone mm-hmm. uh, that we're unwilling to actually unpack what he's saying and kind of engage with it really, really, truly critically. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and, and I think what white Christians and white seminary students and, and students often miss is just the fact that uh, from the very beginning, one of the most consistent parts of Cohen's work has been this invitation to white people to become black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that language uh, can, can, can be difficult and people see that as uh, um as kind of off-putting or whatever, right? Rather mm-hmm. than a kind of invitation to uh, to salvation, to a new way of uh, kind of being in the world. Uh, but but I think he means it in that invitational sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think that uh, uh, it's, it's a um, a loss for us if we fail to engage that as uh, a type of invitation. Mm-hmm. I I might then I might then compare it to to seeing the invitation in uh, in Jesus's. Um, uh, quote, uh, reference to the eye of the needle, um, uh-huh. yeah, uh, as opposed to seeing it as something to be intimidated by. I think that's that's right, and and uh, a point that I make, uh, kind of kind of developed through through the book is that uh, his invitation to uh, become black, that is to kind of join in solidarity with uh, efforts of black liberation, um, not sort of cheap empathy, but actually taking on the risks of uh, people who. Um, who, who are oppressed. Uh, he, he talks about that, uh, kind of using Jesus's words and, and, uh, Mark of, uh, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Christ, the kind of three marks of, uh, discipleship that Jesus outlines. That's the way that Cohen explains, uh, kind of what it means, uh, to become black. You know, he doesn't focus part of what one of the, uh, kind of arguments I make in the book is that Cohen's a lot more concerned with empowering uh, black Christians and black people uh, towards self-determination than he is in kind of hand-holding white people through the process of what it looks like uh, to join an anti-racist uh, solidarity, right? Mm. Uh, but he does provide a few hints here or there, and I think the best hint is the way that he uh, kind of uses the analogy of discipleship, of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Christ um, as a, a kind of model for what it uh, would look like concretely uh, to, to take on blackness. Mm-hmm. So, so as a brief aside, going back to your reference about um, the the feeling of of discomfort when being interviewed, uh-huh, yes. uh that that is that is always my uh, that is always my approach to being the interviewer, uh-huh. uh, because because what often what often happens is there's always there's always this this feeling of of intellectual intimidation. Mm-hmm. Um, of sometimes I, I I am speaking to people who are far more educated than myself and trying not to make myself sound like an idiot in the process. <laughs> yeah, well, imagine doing that with uh, you know two of the people who I consider maybe the best American, at least Protestant theologians of the last half century. Right. <laughs> so right. uh, Harawas and Cohen and, and and trying to uh, you know uh, talk with them uh, was uh, wildly intimidating. <laughs> right. Right. Especially especially as especially. Is Cone has uh, has made it pretty clear where he stands on um, uh, smart ass white kid white kids. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so so one of the things that I found interesting in your in your book another another thing was your uh, your insistence upon story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I uh, that that would be something that I'd invite you to uh, to expand on a little more if you're willing. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, now, something that uh, a kind of theme that began to take shape and now, in, in some sense, sort of structures the whole of, of the book, and now something that uh, kind of developed in the uh, writing of it. It begins, one, with my uh, uh, kind of, you know, post-liberal background and formation uh, to think in terms of, of, of narrative and how, how narrative shapes the world around us. But even more specifically, the kind of jumping-off point was uh, one of Howard Wass's books, he he, uh, he talks about race. I think he's written four or five articles on race. His very first published essay uh, at his first job ever at Augustana College in 1969, the same year that Cohen published Black Theology and Black Power, was a, a kind of Christian realist defense uh, of black power um, before Howard encountered encountered McIntyre and, and Yoder and, and kind of made those shifts. But since that time, he's only written uh, you know, over the last 50 years, I think four other essays on race. And one of those, uh, he talks about his reasons for the fact that he, he very rarely writes about it. And, and, and it is, and, and he frames it in terms of, uh, the black story and the white story are two different stories. Uh, and for me to take on the black story in my writing, uh, he worries would just be a kind of imperialist project, a project of colonialism, uh, um, I think he, he very rightly uh, sort of understands some of the dangers of cheap empathy and, and uh, kind of cheap reconciliation and uh, and worries that writing about race or the black church or in this specific case, Martin Luther King, um, would be instrumentalizing uh, the black church and the black story for his own uh, intellectual purposes. Uh, and, and that realization in his mind uh completely causes him to, to just to kind of avoid the issue altogether. I think there's some other uh, aspects there, but I think that his, his sense of story uh, causes that he sees uh, kind of the black and white story as, as incommensurable and in, in some ways sort of rival uh, stories where one is always going to take over the other. And so it's best just to stay in your lane. And so uh, uh, kind of use that as a uh, kind of jumping off point to see the ways that our uh, conceptions and practices of, of story and storytelling uh, impact something, it, it impact the way that we think about uh, kind of race and the work of racial justice, that white supremacy began uh, with with stories, um, you know, uh, the uh, Curse of Ham or, or stories uh, uh, that kind of fueled anti-Judaism in the uh, Middle Ages that then turned into uh, supersessionism, that then made uh, religious difference kind of morph into racial difference that began in stories. Uh, and then, um and one of the in the chapter that focuses on Cohen, I show the way that his uh, black theology is in a lot of ways a kind of story shaped theology that offers a different conception of story um, that challenges the kind of closed off uh, kind of narrow view of story and of church uh, in Harawas and kind of opens it up uh, in a more uh, kind of expansive, uh, capacious account of what it means to interact and engage in someone else's story that results in, in him. Uh, inviting white people into the black story to become black. Uh, and so uh, that, that kind of story and, and the different ways that we think about it and the ways that a lot of Howard Wasses and, and other people's stories are shaped by our, our, our kind of, uh, you know, conceptions of whiteness and, and influenced by white supremacy uh, limit uh, the possibilities that we think we have uh, for engaging uh, in, in cross-cultural, cross-racial work. 
good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, a, a little bit long, long-winded. No, there, no, but. that that's fine. That's fine. That to kind of to kind of go off on a on a, another another one of those side notes. Um, uh-huh. I spoke with Shane Claiborne recently. Um, okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, one of the one of the things that I had uh, I had noticed in the conversation, and I had been able to to have a brief conversation with him about uh, in the interview was um, uh, his 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 real hesitancy um, or willingness to speak about anything relating to the LGBTQ um, mm-hmm. situation yeah. in the church in the Methodist Church especially. Um, and, and kind of seeing a similar sense of that that uh, blindness. Um, mm, yep. That uh, obviously not not quite the same, somewhat similar. Um, mm-hmm. But so so one of the one of the unique challenges that we have, and and I, I might have mentioned this in my previous email, um, is that I I am working out of a very rural church, mm-hmm. um, as are a lot of the people who listen to this, a lot of my friends. Um, are either either church members of or or the pastors of uh, very rural churches and in in such places that are that are very homogenized uh, very mm-hmm. white um, and and there exists in these in these places um, I mean you you've, you're from the south so I imagine right. yeah. you've, had, you've had this experience all your life but it's the um, uh, this this unwillingness to even consider that maybe any of this is real or that mm-hmm. any of it matters or even if it, if it does matter then you know the why does the church have to bother itself with this yeah yeah i know i mean it's, it's definitely part of uh the experience of growing up especially in kind of the evangelical churches in the south uh, i mean uh kind of first question of what is racial justice any type of social justice actually have to do with what we do as the church is is one thing to, to overcome but especially in our kind of increasingly homogenized uh you know world um i think it becomes especially difficult to convince people that this stuff matters um one one thing that, I, that i've started to kind of take note of and realize even in the ways that the uh, kind of media talks about this stuff both on the on the left and and uh, on the right and the left uh is when we see something like a white nationalist uh, mass shooting in El Paso, or uh, um, you know, uh, white nationalist marchers in, in in Charlottesville. We use the terms white supremacist, white supremacist, or racist to identify specific actors who are doing these horrendous things that we can all mostly kind of collectively agree are are kind of beyond the pale. Uh, you're racist, uh, but that allows us to distance ourselves from what they're doing. They're white supremacists. They're racist, but I'm not because I don't think about these things, right? I don't think positively or negatively. I don't, I, I don't have these prejudices or act in racist ways. But I think the fact that we, uh, and so I'm beginning to think we need to stop using the terms white supremacist and racist as nouns to identify specific people. Uh, and think about them as, as ideologies, as structures, um, institutions, systems that were all principalities. <laughs> exactly, powers and principalities that we're all complicit in. Um, I'm, I, I can't escape white supremacy. Um, I can't escape racism because I've been shaped and formed by that. And so I think that the, tur- the, the work of even you know kind of small rural uh, white churches that have no black members who live in very homogenized uh, communities. Same for kind of, uh, you know, suburban uh, communities that are, you know, in churches uh, is not not to jump too quickly into kind of work of, of reconciliation. There are a lot of 
great resources out there about how, you know, how we need to kind of slow the role of uh, the work of racial reconciliation until we uh, begin to uncover some of the more deeper and systemic issues that are there. But I think that the work of these churches is to kind of do what I'm arguing for in the book, is to examine ourselves um, and try to find uh, the, uh, the uh, elements of, of whiteness, of white supremacy that are impacting and shaping our own church practices and our own theologies and worldviews and really do some of that self-interrogating uh, work um, as a community and as individuals um, to prepare ourselves to be able to do uh, um, kind of cross-racial uh, engagement work and racial reconciliation. I, 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 I think um, we begin oftentimes to do that work very unreflectively uh, without recognizing the ways that we're approaching that still with uh, kind of uh, enmeshed in, in uh, white supremacist tendencies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I I absolutely see that. Um, in in part of the part of the hesitation I see I see amidst amidst uh, my uh, myself and other pastor friends um, is this this hesitation of of just receiving like uh, uh, extreme pushback from congregants, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and not just congregants but like the communities we are we are enmeshed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I read a book like this, and and so thinking about your you you have you as as I mentioned before, you have at the end this section on practical ideas, uh, best practices, maybe we could call them, and you you offer these ideas, and I'm I'm interested to hear to hear what you offer, um, mm-hmm. as well as I I see that part of what you're part of part of obviously what you say in that is that. Um, you know these are these are working theories. These aren't necessarily they maybe they'll work, maybe they won't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it would have to be contextual. Uh, I kind of give sort of broad practical concepts that would have to kind of play out at the local level. But yeah. Um, so I look at uh, in my uh, kind of comparative analysis of, of Harawas and Cohen, uh, I see three sort of conceptual elements that they hold in common. Uh, uh, and and on, on a concrete level, these sort of issue out in terms of uh, practices of remembrance, uh, repentance, uh, and some kind of repair. In, in their in their work, these are uh, uh, they kind of all they kind of both share uh, uh, kind of shared emphases on memory, on kind of particularity, and on concreteness. Uh, and I think kind of practically that's how these work out. And, and, and in fact, what I'm kind of doing the book is show how these three concepts are also uh, the three concepts that they both like in the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who becomes the only theologian that both uh, Harris and Cohen appeal to positively, uh, kind of consistently throughout their work. And so I'll kind of look at Bonhoeffer, which is where some of the ideas of responsibility come. But I see the responsibility playing out in practices of remembrance, repentance, uh, and repair. Uh, and, and I think that it has to proceed in that order. And so the first work has to be working in terms of practices of remembrance. And that's looking, I mean, and so this would be for, for uh, kind of churches that may have congregants who resist this, uh, looking at the history of your congregation and your church, um, especially in the South, that have origins in uh, uh, segregation or origins in uh, kind of racial divisions or even uh, slavery and kind of uncovering um, what that looked like. Uh, 
what is the uh, kind of context of the uh, location you find yourself in, of the town? What is the kind of racial history there? And begin doing some of that work to uncover the role that your church or other churches possibly played uh, in racial oppression. Um, and I think that work of remembrance uh, then uh, leads necessarily to uh, kind of work of repentance. Uh, and like I said, this work, this is contextual. It works in different churches with different theological emphases. I mean, uh, some churches may uh, really focus, you could think about this in terms of uh, kind of Eucharistic theology, you know, uh, kind of uh, remembrance of, of Christ, the one who was crucified for us, and what kind of, uh, what types of uh, peoples have, have we worked to uh, kind of crucify and oppress uh, through the years. Or think about it um, in terms of sin and grace, um, a, a focus on thinking about white supremacy as, a, as original sin uh, in, in, in the book and focus in, in kind of uh, having a, a heightened view of, of uh, the ways that we're all kind of embroiled in sin, even if we're not kind of acting out of that every single day. Uh, but using different theological concepts that are familiar uh, and kind of accepted by your congregation to make uh, connections to this work uh, and kind of histories of racial oppressions uh, to kind of begin to uncover the roles that Christianity has played uh, in perpetuating this. You got my, just as you say that, like my wheels are turning in terms of like thinking about my own context in the church that I'm in now mm -hmm. um, and what that, what that might look like and how that might uh, uh, manifest itself. Well, so I'll give you one example. I don't want to give too much away. I just want people to read the book. Right, but right. I'll you, want, you want people to read the book, of course. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you, I'll give you the, for, for each of these, I give a practical example. And I'll give the practical example of, uh, of the remembrance one because it's uh, the church that I'm currently a member of in D.C., Okay. Uh, so for a long time, this, this congregation, Baptist congregation, uh, was founded in 1862, uh, so in the middle of the Civil War, and uh, the history that was told was that uh, it was founded by a group of abolitionists who split off from another church in D.C., um, who, because that church didn't want to take a public stand uh, in favor of abolition. And so the church members split off to form this kind of abolitionist vision church. Uh Recent work in uh, kind of the archives and, and different things over the last few years has actually revealed that, that story that this congregation has told about itself uh, is, is false. Um, the church was founded by pro-union uh, members, um, but not necessarily members who were abolitionists. They, they uh, wanted the country to stay together, uh, and they were generally in favor of any uh method that would do that <laughs> and and kind of generally thought that abolitionism uh was kind of severing uh the country um and so in the founding documents of the church uh there's no mention of abolitionism only pro-unionism uh and in fact one of the uh, kind of uh main benefactors of the church what the kind of founding father of the church himself was a slave owner uh and so this has caused the congregation to now have to re-remember uh, it's history and retell its history rightly uh, and in a kind of repentant tone. Um, and I think that uh, there are probably plenty of churches and congregations around uh, the U.S. that have similar, if not worse, stories of, of, of their origins and, and, and their history. Uh, and a lot of times we, we put this uh, kind of veneer over our histories that uh, make it seem more palatable, uh, make us feel good about ourselves. Uh, and, and we could do some more work to kind of interrogate those histories uh, a bit and, and rightly remember uh, our, our kind of history of, uh, of oppression. Hmm. Hmm. Another, another example that I can think of happening in, uh, in uh, North Ohio uh, this coming week, I believe, um, 
the the members the uh, in the north uh, North Sandusky there in in northern Ohio uh, mm-hmm. will actually be returning uh, the property uh, that the church sits on to to the native tribe to the uh, okay. uh, the Wyandotte. Um, and and I think I, I think of that as like one of those examples of, of what you're saying there of the uh, um, the reconciliation and the um, uh, restoration. Yeah, I'm sure that's. I mean, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and I know you know it's a controversial word, but I think a lot of times when we rightly remember our histories, we realize that it not only has to lead to repentance, but also in some ways has to lead to reparations to, mm-hmm. to uh, kind of make right. Uh, these histories. I mean, we see this in, in kind of a local context in D.C., both Georgetown and now Virginia Theological Seminary in uh, Alexandria um, have have kind of done the work to kind of rightly remember their history um, and the ways that uh, their kind of land and, and buildings were were built by slaves uh, and uh, uh, and trying to f- now find some of the descendants of those enslaved people um, to uh, uh and, and, and set up different forms of, of, of reparations. And again, you know, it has to be contextual to each, each, uh, case and situation is going to be different. But, uh, but I think that there's a, a kind of line of remembrance, repentance and, and reparation that, uh, proceeds, uh, from, uh, kind of from taking responsibility for the, uh, for the work of the church, uh, in perpetuating and even, uh, kind of originating, uh, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know, in my more in my more radical moments, like that's always something that I'm considering uh, the church should be doing, especially as churches continue to close. Um, mm-hmm. Is that yeah. that idea that idea of rather than rather than just selling the land off, instead like restoring it either to the native tribe that the the land was originally founded on, um, or in the case of churches built by by uh, by slaves, um, returning it in some capacity to to those families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. We just don't. There are not many uh, examples or models of that, especially on a kind of congregational level, level to, to to go, you know, to kind of move from. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I think every uh, kind of congregation, every denomination or, or, or context has to figure out what this looks like for itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I said that during a sermon one time. I, I was preaching about <laughs> I was preaching about the because I was preaching about um, um, Zacchaeus because um, I yeah. think I think Zacchaeus is one of the best examples <laughs> of I think it's one of like the few examples in the New Testament of what actual repentance looks like. Yeah, um, I mean, there's the, yeah uh, reparations is in the New mm-hmm. Testament right there. Right, <laughs> right, and so and so I I, I I always like to I like to end sermons with with a uh, with a imagine if you will rather than a we should do this but like mm-hmm. an imagine uh, and so so posing the uh, the imagination of imagine if our if all the churches in the conference or in the in the church. Uh, in the denomination gave the land back to the native tribes mm-hmm. uh, that it did not go over well but yeah, I, I, didn't expect how, how it. Received, yeah. uh, I was it was one of the only times I ever had someone talk back to me in a sermon oh in in the moment in the yeah. sanctuary oh yeah. wow yeah it was uh, it was it was a moment <laughs> yeah yeah oh wow um, and so, so, so to kind of to kind of go back to an earlier question as well as like frame it in the present moment of uh, uh, you know living in the middle of the Trump administration, mm-hmm. um, which which you know we all we all secretly fear is probably going to end up being eight years, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and and trying to 
there's always this there's always this uh, this this tension as a pastor um, in which you you want to under, understand yourself as a prophet, um, but you also you also at the same time are working with the understanding that you're the pastor. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and those two things they don't always cooperate well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they never cooperate well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so trying to trying to speak truth. Uh, uh, to the situation that we find ourselves in, and then also trying to to be aware of how how that's perceived and how that's pushed back against uh, by by the people that we're supposed to be caring for. I don't know if there's a question in there so much as a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we we kind of hear the phrase all the time that Trump's a, uh, a kind of symptom of a larger issue rather than, right. uh, you know, kind of the issue, issue itself. Uh, I don't want to, uh, I wanted to agree with that without kind of letting Trump himself off of the hook for a lot of the damage, uh, that the administration is doing. But I also think that that's, that's true. Uh, you know, there is, especially in terms of the kind of racial di- dynamics of this and the, uh, kind of anti-immigration and, uh, uh, kind of giving, uh, uh, and, and kind of, rhetoric that empowers uh kind of explicit white supremacy and white nationalists to uh kind of march in the streets uh and all i think that um there there is this kind of cultural uh kind of pushback to changing uh whether it's changing demographic uh dynamics that uh uh kind of you know white people are going to be in the minority in 20 years uh or the first black president or or, or all these things that uh um make some maybe many white people uh scared about losing power and and i think a lot of it has to do with power i mean uh curbing immigration into the u.s is is a kind of explicit attempt uh to keep white people in the majority and in, in, in power uh in voting power uh and all i mean it's uh it's, it's uh not a coincidence uh and so i think that um so so i think that means and to some degree churches have to uh even if you don't kind of directly talk about uh, kind of what Trump is doing, I should talk about kind of power dynamics. I mean, again, the principalities and powers and how that impacts uh, our desires and misshapes us and, and kind of misdirects our wills to uh, kind of use Augustinian terms um, mm. and think about what it means to uh, place our sort of fear of losing power over our compassion for the least of these. Mm. Uh, and and I, I think that a lot of churches can, can talk about that. And also I think like a lot of things like that are right there at the intersection of, of kind of prophetic preaching and pastoral care. Um, I, 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 th- I think you're right that a lot of times these things, you know, seem in- incommensurable, but I think, uh, a lot of times what we see is, uh, kind of, uh, perhaps contentious prophetic action is also a form of, of pastoral care where we're helping people cope with some of the, uh, Kind of with a sin that's tarnished our souls, that's misdirected our wills, um, and so to help us see the ways that we've been misshapen and misformed um, by culture, by uh, church, by bad preaching, by um, formation, and you know, that growing up in, in different ecclesial contexts, and I think uh, uh, that, that that maybe if we see uh, a lot more consistency uh, between prophecy and pastoral care uh, or the pastoral role. Uh, you know, it may change the way that we go about doing that work, but if we if we uh, if we see this as is is kind of part of the of, of what it means to do pastoral work, um, uh, uh, 
I, I, I think that we could maybe try to we could come to uh, better practices and, and better messages that uh, uh, both care for people, but uh, help us to see the ways that we're uh, kind of caught up in, in false fears uh, in systems that are uh, keeping other people out or down. So yeah, the the idea of the idea of pushing back again again to use some of that that more Augustinian and, and pre Augustinian language, the idea of pushing back against the passions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ethan Shear. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, hmm. I think, I think it's, it's, it's deep soul work, right? I mean, like uh, you know, who convinces us that we have to be afraid of? Uh, of, of white males losing who fits white males that we have to be afraid of losing power mm-hmm. uh, you know why is that such a bad thing that, that's, that's not a gospel value mm-hmm. <laughs> at all right and so I think like on a kind of uh, not not just more subtle but, but deeper level uh, um, kind of the work of church leaders uh, not just pastors but church leaders can, can be to, to kind of deal with uh, some of these deeper the kind of deeper misdirected uh, values and, and misdirected uh, fears that we have uh, that I think are, are kind of triggering uh, some of these outward expressions and, and support for policies that are really hurting people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, trying trying perhaps as a way to to frame to frame it in a way that's pastor both pastoral and prophetic at the same time. The idea of uh, uh, opening the eyes of the blind is an act of uh, pastoral care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. And, and I, I think I think to to kind of reflect on what you've been saying to the the idea of story, um, mm-hmm. the idea of sharing story, and the idea of of working to make sure that that stories are heard from perspectives other than the ones that they're the the people are so used to listening to or yeah. hearing. I, th- I think that's exactly right. And and I, I want to think that that doesn't come necessarily from inviting the uh, pastor of the black. Methodist church down the street to come and, and preach one Sunday uh, or that kind of thing. We're, we, you know, there, there's there are plenty of resources out there by marginalized voices and people of color that we don't have to ask them to come and do the work for us, but we can rely on the resources that are there to help us kind of retell our stories. Yes, we need to hear other stories, and there are plenty out there uh, already that we don't have to kind of further burden people, but we need to allow, and this is what I think Cone. Uh, and his concept of story does is it, it, it's, it's a counter narrative to the stories that we've been telling ourselves as white Christians. Uh, and it pushes us to reevaluate our stories and, and look deeper to see what our blindnesses uh, are and what's led to some of our silences and, and evasions of this. And while we don't think that racism is something that we need to talk about in churches, uh, what, what stories have we told uh, about ourselves, about our church, about our faith uh, that make it seem like that's uh, the way that it's supposed to be. Um, and so I think the, the work is to uh, kind of tell our own stories to one another, uh, reflected by the kind of stories of marginalized voices that are out there um, that allow us to kind of reshape and retell uh, our own stories. Mm-hmm. I, I like what you said there. The, um, the not not putting the responsibility or not put yeah not putting the responsibility on someone else, but rather taking it on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, yeah, I. I, I always see that as a tendency um, among among pastors. It's like, oh, let's just bring in a let's just bring in an African American preacher and have them <laughs> talk yeah. about it, as opposed to yeah. Um, 
I know I know one of the one of the things and this this is you know probably trying to toot my own horn I don't know um, one of the things I'm very in, trying to be very intentional about doing on this podcast is being more intentional about not just speaking to straight white men mm-hmm. uh, because that that is an easy habit to fall into right um, and so so using this uh, using this platform that I'm I'm that we're recording on now as a, a means of, of having conversations with people that I may that I may never get to have normally um, and that my audience may never listen to mm-hmm. um, or may never hear otherwise yeah yeah no I think that's great yeah um, and so yeah we're coming up we're up on an hour already <laughs> okay and so uh, I wanted to thank you again for doing this um, I'll I'll send you I'll send you a message when I'm when I'm finished editing and when it's all up Okay. Um, if you want to plug that anywhere or put that on the Wesley page, I don't whatever. Oh yeah, for um, sure. I'll, I'll do all of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you for doing this. Um, and uh, go go punch Rick Elgendi in the face for me, loving. <laughs> uh, I will. He's in uh, uh, on sabbatical this semester, so he's taking it easy. And I'm oh, it, do oh. his work for him. Yeah. Oh, well, then, yeah. Then, then punch him double hard. I love that man. I love that man so much. I never got to take a class with him, but. I... Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's great. Yeah. He, he he's he's on a well-deserved sabbatical. So, oh yeah, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything you want to plug before we're uh, before we finish? Um, well, I'll say uh, books coming out with Oxford University Press, but uh, I've written it in a way with uh, stories and um, anecdotes uh, and 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 practices that I think it uh, should be accessible and and hopefully uh, insightful and enjoyable to uh, to church leaders. Uh, to seminary students, to uh, uh, most people who had listened to this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, and it should be coming out sometime in spring of, of 2020. Um, okay. And so, uh, you know, hope, uh, if, if you're interested, uh, uh, go take a look. I, I'll definitely I'll definitely pick up a copy. And, and when, it, when it does come out, we might actually maybe bring you back on. Who knows? Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> great. Uh, thank you again. And yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun.